I'm Paul Dockery, the host of Public Power Underground and Senior Manager of Energy Resource Strategy and Planning for Seattle City Light. I was recently invited to co-host a live recording of Public Power Underground from the main stage at the Energy Authority's 2023 Energy Symposium at the One Ocean Resort and Spa in Atlantic Beach, Florida. As with any live event, there was a hiccup. The hiccup was with my mic at the start of the event. So the intro to the episode and my introduction of Laura Trelease, the co my co-host for the event, didn't get picked up. Laura has been a guest on Public Power Underground before, but to kind of level set the audience, she works for the Energy Authority as its Director of Western Markets and Strategy. Laura has a breadth of experience working on market issues, including time at the Bonneville Power Administration and the public generating pool. We're going to cut to the audio from the room now where uh, Laura and I have say hello and then introduce the rest of the guests. Probably will start with maybe some clapping, which uh, is great. It's a great place to enter an episode. Um, I hope you enjoy the panel discussion as much as I did. Now we'll cut to some panel discussion. I'm glad to have a knowledgeable co-host on electric market issues because I am an enthusiast, not an expert on electric markets. Um, and so since we're at this live recording, maybe we can get a round of applause for Laura to welcome. <laughs> since we're co-hosting, do you mind introducing the next panelist? Sure. First up, I have Malie Vincent, who's the Chief Operating Officer of Platte River Power Authority. And Malie, have you ever been called the coup? Do you, do you get called the coup? The coup? The coup? No, I can't say that I have. On the West Coast, we call the chief operating officer the coup. Oh, <laughs> okay. Gotcha. And I was surprised that that wasn't a thing over in the East. So, but you're also on the West, so maybe maybe it's just maybe it's just me. <laughs> Malie is an experienced leader and energy executive, having spent time at Asus Power Marketing, MISO, Brazos, OMPA, and now Platte River. Platte River Power Authority is a community-owned public power utility that generates and delivers safe, reliable environmentally responsible and financially sustainable. Wow, that's, that's a big job. Yep. Energy and services to Estes Park, Fort Collins, Longmont, and Loveland, Colorado for delivery to their utility customers. Please welcome Malie with a round of applause. This is really nice we got the sign going and everything. It, it is, really makes it you really is. Uh, our next market expert, is, <laughs> is, is is Jamie Maney, the Chief Client Officer at TA. Hi, Jamie. Hi. It's uh, good to have you here. Thank it's you. really wonderful. Um, I wrote his bio as if his sponsorship of Public Power Underground depended on it. I didn't rely on ChatGPT for this purpose. Jamie is an energy executive with over 20 years of demonstrated strength in marketing, business development, energy industry consulting, leadership, and effective communication. The Energy Authority provides public power utilities with access to advanced resources and technology systems so they can respond competitively to changing energy markets. Through partnership with TEA, utilities benefit from an experienced organization that is singularly focused on de deriving the maximum value of their assets from the market. That feel like a good promo for TEA? It does. Did you get your yeah. money's worth on that? No, Not absolutely. Yet. Okay, good. Oh, no, we're good. still going? Oh, no, that was, yeah. <laughs> can we get some applause? Can we get some applause? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and I get the last market expert, last but not least, right, Richard, is Richard Dillon. And Richard is a director for the Southwest Power Pool, SPP. Richard's been in the electric industry since 1985. Richard, that's as long as I've been alive on this earth. <laughs> Ouch. Wow. <laughs> At both integrated utilities and an RTO. Since 1999, Richard's been involved in the development of energy markets in ERCOT, MISO, and SPP. In his current role, he's responsible for market policy within SPP. SPP, as you all know, manages the electric grid and wholesale power market for the central United States and coming to the West. SPP and its diverse group of members and companies coordinate the flow of electricity across approximately 60,000 miles of high voltage transmission lines spanning 14 states. Let's welcome Richard with a round of applause. Uh, that, that feel good, Richard? That feel good? Well, well, I'll say first, I'm aged, I'm not old. <laughs> Age is a matter of years. Old is an attitude. There you go. I, I also wanted to share during the introduction that I learned yesterday 
that Richard sees or, or thinks in images instead of words. So I, I saw this across social media not too long ago. Some people don't have an inner monologue. And he is the first person I've met that does not have an inner monologue. It's an inner vision. We'll call it inner vision. It's a mess of pictures. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Public Power Underground is brought to you by the Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit company that specializes in portfolio management and prides itself on leading communities through today's energy transformation. Owned by public power entities, TEA is more than just adjacent. They're as underground as it gets. TEA is on a mission to help clients maximize the value of their assets while meeting their power supply goals. Great mission. By providing expertise in energy trading, advanced analytics, advisory, and renewable solutions, TEA equips public power utilities with access to state-of-the-art resources and technology systems so they can respond competitively in the changing energy markets. With over 60 other public power utilities proudly partnering with TEA to tackle their energy future, it's time for you to consider breaking ground too. Let TEA help you navigate the uncertain future of our industry by visiting teainc.org. That's teainc.org to learn more today. Well, um, we're focusing the discussion today on market disruptors. Um, we're going to try to learn more about markets and how they're changing uh, with, with, and how they're incorporating these new issues and technologies and which elements of markets these different issues are disrupting. So we're going we're gonna to frame this in, through the three markets, uh, three market functions and which disruptors they'll impact. The first, we're going to look for a market disruptor that's changing the way we deal with resource adequacy. And then we're going to talk about a disruptor to day ahead markets. And lastly, we'll talk about market transformation and the behavior of real-time markets. And if we have enough time, we're going to play an energy analogy game um, that I'm calling disruptors or duds. Um, <laughs> yesterday, they played Jeopardy, and that sounded like it was a hit. Uh, <laughs> we're going to try to maybe live up to Jeopardy, but we are going to play that game if we have enough time. So with that, I'll pass it to you, Laura, to Ask the first one. Sure. Kick us off. And we're, we're not trying to live up to the comedian right before us, right? No, Paul? Okay. I don't think <laughs> I mean, maybe we're trying, but maybe, maybe it won't work. Maybe it will. Okay. Over the past two winters, we've seen back-to-back -back regions sprawling winter storms that have resulted in energy emergencies. In 2021, Winter Storm Uri caused energy emergencies in SVP, MISO, and most dramatically, ERCOT. In 2022, Winter Storm Elliott caused energy emergency in TBA and Duke Energy. Summers have also caused issues in the KISO, specifically summers 2020 and 2022 entered KISO into energy emergencies in 2021 too, <laughs> every year. These extreme weather events seem to be a disruptor to the way we evaluate resource adequacy. Mali, we'll start with you. Can you talk to the disruption to metrics and the way folks are rethinking accreditation of resources as a result of all of these events? Sure. And uh, first off, if it wasn't you know, nerve-wracking enough to be in front of this whole room of people, then they put the picture up from like one of the worst weeks of our, my career. I don't know about the rest of you. Um, that's a, a painful to, week to think back on. Um, but in thinking about resource adequacy, I'm one of these persons who likes to simplify things, and I also like history. I'm, I'll, I'll try, I, I'm not sure if I'm a nerd or a dork or a geek. I didn't um, pinpoint what it was in the previous presentation, but um, certainly a nerd of history in our industry. And um, one of the things I was thinking about is you know resource adequacy I think that's become somewhat antiquated because throughout our history and in our industry it has been about resources you know you think about having you know do we have to build a coal plant do we need to build more gas units what have you to me now it's more about fuel adequacy are we gonna have the Sun and the wind show up are we gonna be able to get gas on a day when we're competing with residential heating are we going to get you know, a, a, a rateable flow order? Are we going to be interrupted if we don't have a firm gas transportation um, contract? And in some cases, for instance, in URI, when I was in Oklahoma, you know, we had firm gas transportation and still couldn't get the gas. Um, and, and that comes into great play. And then, of course, there's also solar and wind. Um, you know, we've touched on it a bit this week, talking about you know, the need for storage. But the way we look at our resource planning is, you know, we're looking at up to five days of dark calms, no sun, no wind. 
So, you know, and, and we actually are looking at form energy and, um, you know, their open iron as a possible long-term solution. But to me, that's what resource adequacy is coming down to is really fuel adequacy. And I think we're seeing that reflected too in how the RTOs are approaching it. Um, first off, of course, you have effective load carrying capability, which we've all heard about for renewables. Um, but you're also seeing it, you know, Richard, I was meant to talk to you about it the other day, I'd like to hear more about it, is you know, SPP asking for these firm gas transportation contracts to address what is force majeure. Um, to make sure that if you have firm transportation for that fuel, you really can get it whenever you, you count, when you need it. Um, so for me, that's, that's the way I'm looking at it, and I'm hoping that that's the lens that we can um, look at that through. So I think uh, I'm really glad we had a great setup to this question leading up to like the couple days of uh, presentations we've had. Uh, because earlier we, the, it was talked about how these winter storms are bigger, right? They span larger geographic footprints, and that is causing more stress on all of the systems within the storm mm -hmm. footprint. Um, yesterday morning in the RTO panel, uh, we talked a little bit, Mark from MISO, who may still be here, talked a little bit how MISO has revisited their accreditation technique. Jamie was making everyone laugh next door. Uh, Richard, do you mind maybe bringing uh, Jamie up to speed on kind of how, at least MISO, and then you can talk about SPP's uh, techniques around resource transparency? Certainly. In fact, in fact, Jamie, you were just a major disruptor of what's going on here. Um, no, MISO and, and SPP both uh, have been looking at the ELCC, also looking at fuel contracts. Uh, there's a lot of effort going on there. The uh, uh, it is cha cha changing the capacity accreditation, without a doubt. Uh, it's, we're going to have to go further than that. Uh, even, even Mark was saying that there are additional uh, meetings, I believe this week, if I'm recalling, this week or next week. I believe you. In, let's just say, in, let's in just say you're right. Let's yeah. just say you're right. Just accept it, right? Just accept it. <laughs> okay. But uh, we're, we're all having to really look at how we're evaluating what's the real capacity out there. So that, that in a nutshell, I think, covered what you were. Yeah, and Malie, you mentioned this, right? It's not really about how much you have installed, but getting the energy from that resource when it mm -hmm. is needed. And it sounded, in my interpretation of like, what I heard from Mark, is there's like a backwardated look to see if the resources showed up when like winter storm Uri occurred or some of those. Um, are you following us, Jamie? I am. I'm okay. learning a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, uh, you want to chime in on any thoughts you have around the way this is all changing because of weather? Yeah, I think, I mean, the interesting thing, and you, you mentioned the dark and calm, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, no matter what statistical probability we put on a unit being there, whether it's it's fueled or not, mm -hmm. um, it's not zero. I mean, it's not it's not not zero, right? There, there's a zero. There's there are times when it could be zero, mm -hmm. and so how do you plan for that? Even if it's got a 27% capacity factor, it's not going to be there 27% of the mm -hmm. time. It's either going to be there or it's not, right? Right. And so what happens when it's not? And that coincides with the type of weather event, like we saw in Uri. Where, where even if you have firm capacity for fuel, the fuel's not there. Um, and then you can't lean on other regions. And so Alex was talking yesterday, um, maybe in our Jeopardy session, which was, oh, oh, which was amazing. Too. That's right. Schoolish. Um, in, much, in much competition with, uh, with the other sessions. Um, but the fact that during Elliott, that the wind was blowing. And right. the wind in the Midwest really helped to, to bolster the east and kind of save the east um, during that storm. But, um, you know, you, you can't really plan on that, right? So, um, so really, how do we how do we go about you know planning for this when when those things are just so variable until we get enough mm -hmm. storage to actually you know help us bridge the gap? Right. And, and if I can add on to that too, I just did a board presentation actually this last month about you know the financial end of this too. You know, you're, I have those. You're that long list in my bio of, of what our mission is at Platte River, which is reliability, environmental responsibility, and financial uh, sustainability. Um, in this board presentation, we looked at our net variable cost to serve our owner community load. And on a regular shoulder day, it's about $17, $18 a megawatt hour. Um, we looked at December 22nd, you know, just a couple months ago, and um, 
it, it turned out to be okay. Um, we ended up at about $54 a megawatt hour, but then I threw a hypothetical out there because we are looking at retiring our, our coal. And it was $187 per megawatt hour on a net variable cost to serve load for the same 24-hour time period. And that was assuming that we still had the wind. This is what made me think of it. Right. You know, assuming that we'd had the wind, um, assuming that our operators could perfectly forecast what that wind would do and so therefore would purchase perfectly in the market, assuming that we'd be at the same price point, which probably wouldn't. There was, you know, scarcity would be even more expensive. But then also assuming that our neighbors could provide that power that we would need to purchase. So for us, you know, we're looking at this, you know, many of you may know, we're, we're trying to go to non-carbon by 2030, which is extraordinarily, it's a moonshot. Um, but we also have to make sure that we're doing that reliably, but we, if we're gonna have cleaner air, we have to make sure people can afford to live where the cleaner air is too. So that does come into play. So. And, and unfortunately, sorry, unfortunately, mm -hmm. we're looking at extreme events mm -hmm. and going, well, that's an extreme event. It's an extreme event that triggers the fuel mix that, that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. As we move further uh, into the rest of this decade, that fuel mix is gonna be more along the lines of the renewables, and it won't take an extreme event so much as a, a calm wind day mm -hmm. or cloud cover day or something like that to have us back going, okay, how much is reliable and and we're all struggling with that this is this is just something that we're not sure yet how to get a grip on it so I, I had one follow-up for you Malie and maybe Richard and Jamie you can you can always <laughs> jump in as well but you had you had made the comment about being able to rely on purchasing from your neighbors and part of what happened in the CAISO in 2020 is that there was a, a heat wave across the West. And so they were not able to rely on the imports that they were expecting and that they planned for in their resource adequacy. So any thoughts on, it's not just about resource accreditation, but what about this issue of, hey, I, I, I didn't build everything in my own system to cover all of these. I'm relying on my neighbors, but my neighbors are also going through extreme weather events. Any thoughts on that? Do you want me to pick it up first, or Richard? I, either way, I mean, I, I, I hate to say a pun, but I'm deathly afraid of the perfect storm scenario on the Eastern Interconnect. Mm. Because even though we have enough capacity, do we have enough deliverable capacity at the right locations? Uh, uh, Nebraska, as an example, had more than enough capacity, but because we were bringing in six gig from PJM during one of those storms, we had some of Nebraska load going black uh, because it couldn't, the lines could not handle both. If PJM had been under the same storm that we were, then we wouldn't have had that energy to import. That's what scares the daylights out of me, is that perfect storm, no pun intended, that hits all the major supplies at the same time, and we're all being asked to meet those demands. And if I can add on to that too, one of the things that I, I've been thinking about since URI is, you know, the whole RTO concept is predicated on the LMP, you know, the next cheapest megawatt hour of power out there. And in the midst of, of URI, it suddenly became, let's get the next megawatt hour. It, it wasn't about what was the least expensive. Um, so for me, one of the things I've pondered since then is, you know, at what point do we stop competing with each other to purchase the gas that we need in order to support the system in some of these events? Um, and when do we coordinate, perhaps, with the RTO to say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that the most efficient, most reliable units are the ones that get the gas. And that way we're not driving gas costs. At one point in URI, we were quoted $1,250 in MMBTU. I mean, that's insane. That's like going up to the, you know, to fill up your gas tank and it's gone from $3 a gallon to $1,200 a gallon. Um, that's just, it's unsustainable. It seems like, especially as I think about the regionalization in the West, right, um, to use an analogy, um, 
So uh, it, it's sort of like if everyone's moving in the same direction, right? It's like fielding a football team with 11 offensive linemen, right? We all have the same strengths. We all have the same weaknesses. So let's put 11 of us together and that's going to work. It's yeah. not going to work, right? And so it seems like when everybody's moving in the same direction, kind of maybe at different paces, um, that you kind of lose any benefit of diversity or, or regionalization um, when we're all going to wind up with the same resource stack. Right? And so everyone's weakness is the same. So maybe a little bit of, of regional diversity just because uh, of the geography and the spread. But at the end of the day, it's all the same resources that everyone's relying on. Yeah, I do want to underscore like one premise of the prompt is that it is largely the, the large geographic footprint of the, of the weather events mm -hmm. instead of, and the distinction being, instead of the changing resource mix. Because one of the premises of a large fleet of variable energy resources is that you could site them in geographically diverse areas so they weren't susceptible to the same weather pattern. And then you could connect them with transmission. And I think one of the things that we have to think through and is impacting resource accreditation techniques and the way we have to think about it now is that premise may not be true if this is how we're experiencing large-scale geographic um, footprints of extreme weather events. Does that distinction make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Laura doesn't believe me, which is fine and healthy. <laughs> Paul, Paul, you're right. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Moving on, we will move to our next topic. Um, uh, I am actually going to pivot unless anybody else has anything else on resource accreditation, which I think is being disrupted, quite frankly. Um, and that will trickle down to day ahead markets. So um, first we need, yes, we need the typewriter, Chris, you're awesome, perfect. <laughs> We're seeing organized markets develop new products for day ahead, uh, like, for day ahead, like flexible ramping and imbalance reserves that co-optimize economic dispatch and change unit commitment procedures. You're totally going to correct me on this, which is why I'm asking you, because I need to be corrected. I enjoy it. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Can you talk about the disruption to day ahead markets, Richard, and um, the way those mechanics are changing because of forecast accuracy of renewables and how a new vector of uncertainty is impacting the ability to clear the traditionally structured day ahead energy market? Or so not, and you know, whatever you think is the right question. So I will try to fit in my three minutes some education too. Please, that would, yeah. You only so, get three minutes, I'm glad you respect that. Uh, so first off, what's the purpose of the day head market? It's not to make money. Okay. I know, it's a sure. shock, right? The purpose of the day head market was actually to get a unit commitment for the next day. And it was all designed around the traditional generators. I tell it to turn on, and until I tell it to turn off, it keeps running. So a disruptor that's been out there has been the renewables, because you do not know how much capacity you're going to have tomorrow. Uh, quite frankly, the, the wind and the uh, cloud forecasts uh, are horrible for the next day. Yeah, so to kind of interpret, like it's not for traditional natural gas or coal-fired, it is unit commitment because they, they need to know if they need to be running, but we've been disrupted by renewables, which you aren't committing a renewable resource, I mean, generically. They're just gonna show up or not. They're, at, at the current moment, that is true. Okay. okay, so that's a current disruptor. Let's add one more. Please do. Distributed energy resources. Mm. Because that's gonna hit us whether it is a resource that we're saying is necessary in the day ahead market, or there's a coming reduction in the load we did not anticipate, and now we have generation in the wrong locations that's actually creating congestion. I'm gonna let that sink in. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna see if Jamie or Malie can help interpret it for me, <laughs> maybe repeat it in different words, and we can come back to you, Richard, if we get it wrong, Jamie. Malie, so, yeah, interpretation here? Well, I, I kind of have a follow-on question just, just as a math problem, right? Um, just solving a day-ahead market with thermal resources that have known heat rates and kind of known gas prices, right? And these things is pretty tough. I mean, yes. it, it's, it's not an easy co-optimization problem, right? Um, so now you throw in, you know, wind and solar forecasts into that, and now you, you know, exponentially increase the computing I mean, literally just the computing power 
needed to solve a, a, the market with demand resources. How do you do that? Is there, is, there is no supercomputer out there. Yeah. I can tell you that uh, SPP is basically at the limit mm -hmm. to, get the, to get everything out. And actually, we're an hour late wow. compared with everyone else because of all the computing. And, uh, and we also have one of, the highest, one of the highest penetrations of the renewables, and that's part of it. And that also creates uh, the opportunity for virtuals, which come in and fill the megawatts. Okay, so I got the megawatts, but they're coming in with a $20 higher price than what the wind is offering in real time. And so they're creating a price spread. Right. So, yes, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Do we get to a point where it's not solvable with, with current kind of technology? I'm concerned that we won't be able to meet the five-minute solve, honestly, right. especially uh, when we start saying dispatchable load. Right. Because now I'm moving both sides. That's right. As opposed to saying, ah, there's, that's what I need to meet. I'll just piddle on this side. No, now I'm moving both sides. So I, I personally am concerned that uh, we may have to move to a longer, like a 10-minute dispatch instead of a five-minute dispatch. One of the things that I, I, we think a lot about at Flat River, too, on this issue is, I was thinking about it yesterday, too, and you were talking on, on your panel about, you know, we have state versus federal, and we have, you know, all the issues going on with high voltage, and you were talking about distribution. Well, we also have local versus state and local versus federal, and how do we even communicate with our owner communities, you know, you have that local control issue with public power, um, and that's that's a, a big issue for us because we want to respect that local control, but at the same time we want to bring our, our communities, or our expertise to our communities, and how do you bridge that gap and make the market more accessible to the owner communities? Yes, and, and what it comes back to for you is is quite frankly, the day ahead is becoming more uncertain in regards okay. to reality. Because you have all these moving parts that won't move until real time. And, and you're, you're trying to add them up in day ahead, and you're going to have to overcommit in order to cover the contingencies. So just to go back to products a bit, the traditional day-ahead market, my understanding is you clear, you clear energy at expected demand, right? And, and virtuals are in there, so you have another reliability or residual unit commitment process where they fill the gap between what the virtuals didn't, uh, the lack of physical supply um, that wasn't committed in the financial market but now we have all of this uncertainty and we need to make sure we, we get some units committed to be available in real time. And so I'm more familiar with the CAISO and they've been working for five years now on developing what's called an imbalanced reserve product. And what's shocking to me is when they did their analysis on the amount of imbalanced reserves they need to procure day ahead, it's between 2,500, 4,500 megawatts every day depending on the season, it's monthly, looking at historical data of uncertainty. So I'm curious, Richard, for SPP, if you could talk a little bit about the products you have in your market to deal with uncertainty and the magnitude that needs to be procured, and maybe even how you determine the procurement target. So first off, we have one that's active right now, and that is a near-term um, ramping product. So it is, a, it is out to a horizon of 10 to 15 minutes in the future, in real time, trying to roll it back and procure some of that in the day ahead, but it's procured as capacity. It's, it, but we have another one that's rolling out called uncertainty, which has a horizon of roughly 30 minutes. Now this may be sounding a lot like the 30 minute um, regulation in the West, because you're acquiring it to, to cover the gaps. That will change on an hourly basis, the amount necessary. 
and the change is based upon what non-thermal generation is on and how we expect the fluctuations during the day to impact that non-thermal generation. Just to follow up for Malie, so Malie at Platte River, you are all considering joining SBP RTO West, is that correct? That's correct. And today, you deal with your uncertainty mm -hmm. for, your, for your system. And can you talk about what you do today and have you thought about how that will change going into SBP? Is it gonna require you to have more resources than you do now to make sure you're able to provide enough for the product or can you to, talk about that? Sure. Today we're in uh, Piesco's BA. Um, we had actually been talking to them about doing some self-providing for our uncertainty um, product, but looked at it and realized it was so complicated that, and two, where gas prices headed. Now we're, we're back down a little bit, but when we were having these conversations, gas prices were much higher. And it didn't make much sense for us to create this whole new system, especially when we're going into Weiss soon, and, and then we have committed to RTO West. Um, but yes, that's something that our resource planners are, are looking at and considering. And it, it was part of our calculus in, in looking at RTO West, is you know, it's a known market construct. Uh, we have confidence that SPP will have the solutions that that we need in order to meet that uncertainty. I, I kind of want to summarize for, for myself, who probably doesn't have the IQ circle, I'm somewhere else on the different, uh, different one. Uh, it, it seems like, I think this is the premise of the question, I just want to like underscore whether it's right or not. Just give me a yes or no, right? It seems like the markets are designing these new products because they're, we're, we're dealing with resources that, need, that have new attributes. Yes. Mark from MISO, who I don't know if he's still here or not, from the presentation yesterday, did distinguish that the resources we are evolving to just have different attributes than those that we've cleared in the past. And what I'm interpreting is markets like SPP, like KISO, are developing additional products that clear within the day ahead to monetize or value those different attributes. Yes. Yes, okay. Yes. This is yes. all about yes. the ego. This is all about the ego. Paul, Paul, you're right. I'm right. Yes, I am having a midlife crisis. This is how I'm dealing with it. Okay. Very good. So we're going to segue. Can I get a typewriter? And Laura, you got it. Okay, this time we're starting with Jamie. All right. You ready? Speaking of midlife crisis, Speaking here we go. Speaking of midlife crisis, here we go. Jamie, we're starting with you. The disruptors to resource adequacy and dayhead markets that we talked about manifest as market disruption in spot prices. What do you think is the biggest disruptor now or in the future for spot prices? And it says here, why, why is it natural gas fundamentals? Well, you're sure of yourself, are you? <laughs> uh, well, I've never been a power supply planner, but I used to uh, look over Mike McGlure's shoulders, uh, or shoulder as, uh, as he was planning for AMP. And, uh, but as I think about it, you know, the more that we move away from true baseload or traditional baseload uh, generation, now we're relying on natural gas for baseload. And then we're going to rely on natural gas for intermediate. And then we're going to rely on natural gas for peaking, right? And so part of this, I think, is one, that's fundamentally why, why it's so important. But I think the opposite of, of maybe Peter, while it's really difficult, to build new nuclear. Um, it's absolutely a necessity in terms of any technologies we're aware of today that's, that are carbon free, right, that can fill in that bottom portion, that baseload portion. So now it's okay if we rely maybe a little bit less on natural gas just for the intermediate and the peaking. Um, but in the meantime, right, um, we have plenty of gas, supposedly, right, plenty of supply in the ground, in the basins. Um, we don't have plenty of gas where we need it. And we're not building any pipelines. Right? And so, um, so I think the more and more we rely on this gas that you can't actually get to where you need it. And Malia, you saw this when you were in Oklahoma, right? And so, I mean, certainly gas was high everywhere, but it wasn't $1,200 everywhere, mm -hmm. right? Um, I believe during Elliott, Henry Hub was not all that volatile, but where our plants were was extremely expensive. And, uh, and so I think that that's why it's the key. I don't know that, I mean, it feels like it's, you know, it's hard to build a 
you know, natural gas pipeline as it does a nuclear plant these days. So, like, <laughs> I know that's a bit of an overstatement, but like, not a lot is getting built from an infrastructure perspective. So, we're going to be relying on that, you know, that marginal, um, you know, molecule of gas uh, for a long time. And so, um, that obviously has big impacts on portfolio management. Um, so, as you're trying to hedge those risks, you can certainly hedge Henry Hub, right? But that's not really your problem, right? And how do I hedge that risk in Oklahoma? How do I hedge that risk in Minnesota? Um, and so from a hedging perspective, that's going to be um, just more and more of a focus that we have to make sure that we're understanding that basis risk um, and hedging from that perspective. You want to follow up, Malia? Well, you know, it is, um, make sure I say, say this correctly. <laughs> so we're not thinking of natural gas in our house necessarily as base load, peaker, intermediate, we're thinking of it as more of like an insurance policy. Mm. Like I said, we're trying to get to non-carbon by 2030. We know that the technology is not there today for us to have the energy storage that we need in order to handle the dark comms we were talking about earlier. So natural gas, if we can have that dispatchable resource, do it more efficiently than what we have in the fleet today, um, do it cleaner, do it where we can perhaps um, you know, dual fuel, uh, looking at other resources, perhaps, or fuels, you know, hydrogen, those types of things, um, that can get us to the point where we can have that non-carbon future with still having the reliability that gas provides. So, um, years ago, I saw a presentation um, from, I believe it was Kathleen Best of the Bridal Group, and I loved how she talked about it. We, we can't really even think about resources anymore in that base, base load, intermediate, and peaker, um, construct, um, not to completely <laughs> disregard what you just That's said, okay. sorry, I just realized how that came out, but you have to think about what your resources are capable of. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so for us, you know, if, if we're looking at doing a dispatchable resource, that's what it's there for, it's to provide that reliability product that we need for the system. So I, I have this premise, and it was embedded in the question, right? And I, and I think of it through the lens of uh, there's this professor at Notre Dame called Dr. Emily Gruber who published this paper about the mid-transition, which is this period of the energy transition where you're still reliant on your existing infrastructure for things like natural gas, but you aren't investing in them, so you have less reliability of those systems. Mm -hmm. And this period during when you're trying to get off of the carbon-emitting resources, right? And, and it actually... I think the premise of the question is, that's gonna add a lot of volatility to the real-time market. Does that make sense? Because I do think the insurance policy is like a good framework to think about a natural gas plant. Like it's there to try to guarantee reliability. But Dr. Grubert's philosophy, who's gonna be on Public Power Underground in mid-April, and you should all subscribe so you can get that episode. She is brilliant. Um, it, part of the philosophy is you have to plan for that. And you need to plan the natural gas system to be able to do that. So, mm -hmm. is SPP planning the nat or coordinating <laughs> with natural gas systems to be able to do this? No, SPP, oh. SPP is not, the RTOs are not. We become, um, we get information, but what we're finding out, and this is part of the uh, entire, what's the real capability, even of the thermal units? You touched on it. Are you going to maintain a plant that you may be planning on retiring? And the short answer is no. You're going to do the minimal maintenance, which means its efficiency keeps dropping. Uh, we, have, we have places where if we need multiple gas units, when one's running full out, the other one, the pipeline does not have the pressure necessary to deliver to the other one. Even though the pipe's big enough, the pressure drops. Kind of like when someone flushes a toilet downstairs and you're in the shower. You know, the pressure drops and, and all of a sudden you're in trouble. So it's maintenance, it's the pipeline infrastructure. And, uh, and then one of the things we all found out was in the rush to do demand response, critical infrastructure such as pumping stations for the gas got offered up as demand response. Ha, that's, that's not smart. No, no, it absolutely is not. You're short, so I'm going to cut the load. Oh, by the way, the load was providing the gas to meet the short. Um, so uh, 
We are coordinating more and more data between the gas pipelines and ourselves. We have to watch out about that, though, because the gas marketers are marketers. We need to be talking with the pipeline, a.k.a. transmission entities, that don't have a need to say, oh, I can cut the gas off over here because SPP's going to need that generator, and they'll pay more to get the gas. So, Malie, you mentioned earlier, sorry not to cut you off, Laura, but you mentioned earlier the desire to, like, plan for the most efficient mm -hmm. power plant to be on, not the, I don't know, the one that bids the least, right? Uh, can you talk a little bit? Because that seems like in this period of mid-transition where you need to intentionally plan for the power plants to, to be retired, can you talk about the prioritization of that and any thoughts you have around that? Uh, I do. That planning? You do. I know as, you do. As you guys were talking, I was like, ooh, I get to talk about my favorite thing, <laughs> which is the culture we have at our power plant. Um, we just won the 2023 Coal Plant of the Year Award, and our plant is scheduled to be retired December 31st of 2029. We actually had a reporter call us and say, can you help us square this up? You've got Coal Plant of the Year Award, and you're retiring it. And my answer was, we have a staff, we have a crew that is committed to seeing through our board's vision, which is a non-carbon future, but that means making sure that we're as reliable and as clean and as safe and efficient as we can be as a coal plant until December 31st, midnight, you know, 2029. Um, and it was interesting, the night after we won the award, I was sitting with um, my colleagues and I said, okay guys, I was being kind of facetious, all right guys, so you won this, what's next? And you know, I was just being kind of you know, facetious and they immediately started going into, hey, we've got the solar farm at this plant. We have, for those who don't know, we have basically 5,000 acres where our coal plant is and we have solar there, we have a battery. Um, you can see off in the distance our wind farm that um, comes into the substation there at the plant, the site. And um, so they're excited about what our future looks like. They're, they're focused on making sure that that last megawatt hour that comes out of our rawhide plant is as good as the one that first came out in 1983, you know, as reliable, um, even cleaner, um, all those sorts of things. So for, for us, it's a lot about culture, and that is going into our resource planning. You know, we created a whole new division called um, Transition and Integration. So we have a CTIO, Chief Transition and Integration Officer. Uh, his name is Raj Singhamsetti. I worked with him at ACES. Brilliant. Great guy, and um, he is very focused on our resource planning, IT, OT, all those things to get us to that um, energy future. And then it's my team who is getting into the markets and, and making sure that when we get to that future that he is planning, that we can operate and you know operate and um, participate in the markets as best possible, reliably, clean. Um, and, and meeting that board mandate of a non-carbon future. So to kind of back up to, I, one thought I didn't complete in my previous answer was that, you know, as we're talking about gas plants, and this fits into what I was just saying too, is that the dispatchable units allow us to bring on more renewables. Mm -hmm. So that's a conversation we're trying to have too, is that it's not just fossil fuels are continuing, it's no, we're looking for those proven technologies that will allow us to incorporate renewables to get us where we want to go. So it, it seems like we're full circle and it goes back to resource adequacy that a lot of these things that are driving price volatility in the real-time markets that it really is an indicator of something that needs to change in resource adequacy. I'm wondering about even all the talk about gas being less reliable. Does that translate into ELCC for gas? <laughs> it does. It does. It, it absolutely does. Um, and the ELCC rolled out first for the renewables because it was the low-hanging fruit. It's not the only one. And, um, and so I think you'll start seeing it on the gas units, too. The, it, it just it has to happen. Uh, as we don't have as many cars in the garage, we need to make sure we know how capable each one is. And we may be surprised by what the results of that are for gas-fired units. For 
that, that is absolutely correct. And I, I heard Malie say one time that the, the best markets are the most boring markets yeah. because they have, <laughs> they have enough resources to, to function properly. Yeah, fi find one of those. <laughs> I didn't say it existed. I just said it was the best. Oh, okay. <laughs> but Jamie, do you feel good about your answer still? You think after our conversation here? You Actually, what was her name, Dr. Dr. Emily Gruber. Rupert, I'd really love to meet her because she did a great job of summarizing my thoughts on this topic. Good, that's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, she'll be on Public Power Underground, you know. So you I know. Listen, listen I'm an avid listener. Jamie wrote her notes, actually. <laughs> that's right. That's it. So we have gone through these three market disruptors. Now, like, it, I think resource adequacy is, I think we agreed, getting disrupted by these large weather patterns that hit a wide geographic footprint. Day ahead markets are seeing high penetration of renewables and demand response, which require different products to be cleared within this economic optimization model. Um, and then within real-time markets, we have this disruption to natural gas during the transition that we need to be planning for and making sure we need to keep it on. Do I, did I oh. capture those thoughts? Paul, you're right. I know, that's, that feels so good, that feels so good. Energy Northwest is proud to provide clean, abundant, and reliable energy to help meet our growing needs. Energy Northwest is proudly advancing the Northwest's clean energy future. I of knew course. that. Yeah, of course. I, of knew course. That. I knew that. They also have a great training program, which isn't in this promo, but I'll just provide it as a promo as well. It's, they have a great internship program uh, where college graduates can get an internship through Energy Northwest. Uh, I've talked about it many times on this podcast. I'm a big fan of that program. Wasn't in this ad read. They didn't write it in, but I'm just inserting it because I'm such a big fan. All right. Well, Sign up, boys and girls. Learn up more about nuclear energy and its full potential at energy-northwest.com. That's energy-northwest.com. Okay, so we're going to transition to an energy analogy game um, because we got a typewriter. Oh, thank you. Nailed it. Because public power underground is at its best when it's playing energy-inspired games and using analogies to explore niche energy industry topics. We're going to do a game I'm calling Disruptors or Duds. For today's game, we're pairing up. Um, we've got um, Lee and Laura, and we've got Richard and Jamie. And I'll share an analogy about an energy industry topic that, that's some niche pop culture reference or sports reference without revealing what the energy issue is that I'm analogizing. And I'm going to ask the teams. you got to discuss them and come up with an answer. Um, and if you get it wrong, the other team can steal it. And if both of them get it wrong, I'm going to ask the audience. So be ready uh, to see if you know what these energy-inspired analogies are. With that, you all ready? Oh, yeah. We've got teams. It's going to be great. We've got teams. Okay, with that, <laughs> I've, got my, I've got my first analogy. Nikola Jokic is a professional basketball player that plays center for the Denver Nuggets. A five-time NBA All-Star and two-time MVP, he is regarded by wonky basketball aficionados as one of the league's best. But he isn't as trendy as the new young flashy guards like John Morant or Luka Doncic. Instead, Nikola is a reliable, steady contributor whose passing, <laughs> rebounding, and playmaking contributions are valued by NBA insiders who watch the games and check the stats. That's not to say Nikola hasn't gained in popularity. He has his own cult following of folks like Zach Lowe, Bill Simmons, and is the buzz that maybe he's the exact kind of contributor we'll need to be the next MVP. Malie and Laura, what energy industry topic is Nikola Jokic? There's a couple of things come to mind. Uh, my first thought is energy efficiency. Not sexy, but it, it is load destruction, so it doesn't come back, doesn't have to be managed you know, later on. It's, it's bringing down that, that load side. What do you think? Well, I can't, I can't remember where I heard this, either yesterday or today, but nuclear is on the rise. It's stable, it's reliable, it's also not sexy, but it could be coming back as the MVP. So I thought about that as well. I like that with the, the small modular reactor 
type, yeah. perhaps even. Could be. Yeah, I like that. I, I figured it's not natural gas because that's that's not coming back, at least not on the West Coast. So yeah, we'll go with that. Nuclear. nuclear. Is nuclear answer? We, nuclear. Should we go nuclear? I think we're going to go with nuclear. Okay, that is correct. Yes. Congratulations, oh. Nikola Jokic. <laughs> Wait, so, Our so, nuclear reactors, reliable. Does that thermal. mean Shaq? Yeah, go is, ahead. Is, is large station nuclear and like Muggsy Bogues? I don't know who the small guy is today in the NBA. Yeah. Is a small modular reactor? <laughs> maybe. Maybe you're straining the analogy too much. Damn. But maybe. I mean, like. John Morant and Luka Doncic are, are probably like wind and solar. Like they're, they're like flashy guards, right? They're coming, they're That's rising right. stars That's in the right. industry. Um, Nikola Jokic, reliable. MVP, MVP. Like are you ready for your analogy? Oh, we're ready. Okay, so uh, this is a personal story. We're gonna analogize out of my personal life, okay? I have three small children um, who are, and all of them during their preschool phase have really enjoyed what's called sensory bins. Some of you have small children and know what a sensory bin is. Most of you don't and you won't enjoy this analogy, uh, but we'll see if it works. Um, if you aren't familiar with them, they're this layer of tactile filled at the bottom, like rice or beans or cotton balls. And then they're these small toys or objects that you play in them. So inevitably, when you have a preschooler playing in the sensory bin, they decide at some point while the parents are away that they need to spread out all of these contents. I see a nod over there in the background. They spread them out all over the place, and you've got these little bits of rice everywhere. And I, as a parent who thinks I'm trying to be a good parent, let's be honest, I try, fail frequently, but I try. I'm like, well, you need to pick that up. You've got to take care of the rice. So they're over there picking up each individual bit of rice and trying to put it back in the bin, which, of course, then turns into a fit. And then I am saying in my internal monologue, well, then don't dump it out. Just leave it in the bin. Inevitably, I have to get out a vacuum. We lose a bunch of rice into the vacuum bag. Um, and, then, uh, and then they cry and scream. But it's what I got to do, right? They don't have the, the, the same amount of rice after they picked a bunch up off the floor. So, Jamie and Richard, what analogous energy industry phenomenon is vacuuming up the rice bits? What do you think? Vacuuming up. Because when, when he started talking about the rice, all I could think of was distributed energy resources. They're everywhere. Mm and trying, trying to combine them back and have something that's effective is, right. is a mess. It's an absolute Indeed. mess. Now, I don't know if that's the answer, but right. that was what came to mind right. because of my stupid picture thinking. Thing. Picture thinking, that's <laughs> yes. right. Doesn't yes. have an internal monologue. Good reminder for everybody. That's right. and images. That's right. Each rice bit has the name on it. <laughs> so, but that's what came to mind for me. All I could think of was carbon capture and sequestration. So you sort of play around in this carbon to get to the good bits, right, which is the energy, right? Um, but inevitably, you spill it out all over the place, and then somehow you have to vacuum it back up, right? Um, so that was my best guess as to what the analogy might be. What do you think? What would we like to say? I like yours. Okay. We'll go with the distributed energy resources. That, that is incorrect. Oh. Jamie got it right. We're talking about direct oh, air capture. Oh, you can't We were Whoa. wrong. That was our guess. That was our guess. That was our guess. Oh, I, I, I totally I'm so sorry. Oh. I stepped all over. We were oh. They're getting the point. They're getting the point. There. You guys, you got, got it. Yeah, way to go. Good job. Thanks, Paul. No, you get the point. That's whatever. Points don't matter. Let's be honest. Okay. Are you ready for your next one? We're ready. Okay. We're ready, Let's Paul. See. Okay. So uh, another personal story. My wife loves snow. Every time, like the first snowfall of the year, my wife, it just like cheers her up, brightens her day, absolutely loves snow, okay? So this, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was out walking my dog and then the snow started falling. It was the first snowfall we'd have had in a very, very long time. It was in the morning, we were getting ready uh, and I was out walking the dog. I come back in the house, right? I want to brighten my wife's day, see if she's seen the snowfall yet, make sure she sees the snowfall. But this is a secret I'm going to share with all of you. Sometimes people aren't ready to hear good news. You need to be very careful. For instance, if someone is getting children ready for school, they may not be ready to hear the good news of the snowfall because they have other things going on. Like this is not their priority to hear this good news. They have these other elements. They have to, they're thinking about a lot of other stuff. So 
my advice is always approach in neutral when bringing good news. You have to, you have to empathize with the person, see if they're ready to hear the good news. And then it's inevitably good news. They like, you know they're gonna like it because they love the thing, but you need to make sure that they're ready to hear the good thing. So, Malie and Laura, what is the energy industry good news that we need to approach in neutral when sharing with folks who may benefit from it? What do you think? I, I'm gonna take a wild guess because I don't, I don't really know. Make sure she agrees with your mind. <laughs> okay. Malia, what do you think about this? So I thought about electric vehicles, no, maybe? I, you're trying to read me. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm, I'm watching your face to yeah. see if that's right. <laughs> electric vehicles, maybe, you know, telling a utility, like, it's great. We're decarbonizing the transportation sector, which should be good news as we're trying to reach our decarbonization goals. But we're not quite ready with the infrastructure to, to handle that and, and maybe we can't take on all that load because we, we have some capacity scarcity issues, maybe? What do you think, Malie? What do you think? Because I'm in my own head about this because we're thinking about it a lot where my mind went to was um, being able to tell our owner communities, hey, we're gonna reach this non-carbon goal. It's what we're all about, it's what we're working towards. <laughs> um, I saw the but wink, we, I think that yeah, <laughs> But we may have to, uh, to build some dispatchable resources to make that a reality. Um, but I don't know that that fits exactly with this analogy. And again, that's kind of me in my own head. I like the idea of EVs because that is something that everybody's excited about. Um, yeah, what do you I'll think? go with you again. <laughs> my ideas seem to be out All there. All right, EVs, electric vehicles, is it right? No, thousand percent false. Oh. We're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, otherwise known as Aunt Ira. Aunt Ira, uh, has a, it's great news. There's a bunch. There's a bunch of value there to be gotten by a bunch of people. Some people aren't ready to hear it. But but yeah. just for the record, I'm pretty sure that was not their answer. I, I, so they can't I, get I, the I, point I, on that. We're running out of time. I can't let them guess. <laughs> I can't let them guess. We're running out of time. I'm sorry. I did it again. But we got we got two minutes left. I got a clock up here. I got to respect the time. I am sorry. You didn't get the points. That's all right. <laughs> but we're we coming got back the point right here time. to tie it up. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for the last one? Sure. Okay. Are you getting images in your head from these analogies? Am I doing uh, a good job? Of, I, of I always have images. Yeah. Am I doing a good job? Okay. So in the iconic comedy Step Brothers, starring Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, the two adult children discover they have a lot in common after being forced together through the marriage of their parents. After initial collisions between the stepbrothers, including a great deal of sweat on some drums, they discover they have a lot in common and become best friends. Their friendship, like truly great friendships that stick, successfully stick together, can produce truly sustainable and ongoing energy that, as individuals, they do not. Jamie and Richard, what energy industry phenomenon is like a stepbrother's friendship? Did we just become best friends? <laughs> Is this, is this a picture yes, of you guys? That's what it is. Let's see, which one do you want to be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? They should get a point just for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the strange thing, and this is perspective I'm coming from, I was thinking about the SPP and CAISO in the West. Mm. That, you know, it's, it's starting off, it's rough, honestly, but eventually we're going to be living in the same house, and um, and we will work it out. You know, now that may not be what he's thinking of, <laughs> but that's a good answer. That is a good answer. That's right. Well, I, I was thinking Step Brother One would be uh, utility who's pretty independent, used to kind of running their own their own shop. And then a regional marketplace where suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm forced together with this other thing. But maybe over time, I can find benefit in that and become best friends. So I was uh, thinking about you know, years ago, um, actually for the Energy Authority, I spent some time at the C-Trans meeting. Do you remember C-Trans? Oh, yes. The C-Trans RTO, the Southeast RTO. Uh, and there were a couple of large IOUs uh, who were kind of running the joint. And they were chairing the committee and everything else. And everyone would get together in a room once a month in Atlanta and talk about 
all these wonderful things that were going to happen in this meeting. And as soon as the gavel bang, the two stepbrothers would walk away like, this is never happening. This is all That's just right. lip service. But we've suddenly seen, like the Southeast Energy Exchange market, certainly not an RTO, but we've seen these utilities come together finally uh, to find better sort of solutions regionally. So I think I agree with you. I think it's the same answer, just a little more generic. It's, it's utilities and regional markets coming together um, but, to find better strength. But I want to know, Richard, which one is SVP here? <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. You don't have to answer that. We can just we can just move on. <laughs> on my right. <laughs> so John C. Riley, is that what? So what's your answer? The, that's our answer. Okay, it's a great answer. It, it is not what I was thinking. <laughs> we, we we're out of time, but do you want to try to steal it real quick? We're I mean, I had a thought. My thought was you that it was quick. the environmentalists getting along with the plant. The no, nope, that's no, not it either. Okay. You can give them another buzz. <laughs> I was being helpful. <laughs> but we still buzz. won, I think. Oh, uh, Where's yeah, the buzz? <laughs> We're, this is fusion energy. We're colliding together to oh. oh. produce Can we get another buzz? <laughs> <laughs> uh, congratulations, you all won the game. Yeah. <laughs> That's all we're covering on the panel. Wonderful job by our co-host, Laura Trulise. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having Wonderful me. Wonderful job by all of the guests. I hope you feel valued, seen, heard, and appreciated. I really do. I hope you feel that. Um, you can find episodes of Public Power Underground on Substack, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. You can also find merch by searching for Public Power Underground on Shopify. Public Power Underground is a co-production of News Data and Seattle City Light. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data to get the podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. And special thanks to sponsor, the Energy Authority. As underground as it gets. As underground as it gets. <laughs> That's right. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. But we'll roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Public Power Underground is a production of Seattle City Light and News Data. The views expressed to our own and not the official views of Seattle City Light, the Energy Authority, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. Today's episode was written by Laura Trelise and Paul Dockery, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden, with sound mixing by Lucas Smith and video editing by Brendan Delzer. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. You don't have to be subscribed to Newsdata's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. <laughs>